Well, good morning, everybody. Good to be with you guys. Uh, we are in a series right now called Relatable, and we're continuing in that series. Um, based on just the fact that people have heard me preach, the, there was some feedback that said I might need some adult supervision, and so Bethany's here today to provide that, and uh, we'll see if the naughtiness goes down at all. Probably won't be increased, but um, anyways, uh, we're in a series called Relatable, and we're exploring the sacredness of relationships. Uh, Jesus was asked, they were trying to test him, it says in Matthew chapter 22, an expert in religious law came to Jesus tested him with this question, verse 36 of Matthew 22, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. All the Jews that were there, all the religious people would have nodded their head like, yes, it's all about how you love God. Get right with the Lord. And Jesus affirms this. And so they're like, we agree. And then he, he says something kind of dynamic uh, especially for this time in history, he says that's the first and greatest commandment, verse 39. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And Jesus uses a term in Greek, it's the word homoios. It means of equal rank, of equal importance, of like kind. He says, this command that I give you, this second command, is not secondary in importance. It's actually of equal weight. And what can be surmised here is that the way we love our neighbor, how we love other people, is at the same weight and equal importance of how we love God. You know, it's interesting, but God is invisible, and the way that we express love and we express devotion and we serve as Christians an invisible God is through a tangible expression by loving our visible brothers and sisters, um, the way that we love people. And so from the very beginning of Christianity, there has been this incredible dynamic of this worship and, and fellowship with an invisible God characterized with very physical, tangible expressions of love, of service, of community. Um, and, and in the series, we're exploring that, the sacredness of relationships, kind of going, uh, peeling the onion back layer by layer, talking about how we express the sacredness of relationship and express God's love to our spouse in marriage, how we express it in our parenting uh, to our children, how we express it in our friendships, how we express it in our dating and singleness and th those phases of life. So we've been examining that for the past few weeks. Hopefully God's been moving in your life and speaking to you. Um, we had an idea for this series to do a Q&A. And so we've been asking for questions and you guys did not disappoint. I mean, these are great questions that were asked uh, that we're going to talk about today. Um, they are challenging questions. They're deep questions. They're authentic questions. We're not going to have a, a chance to get through every question just because we like I think maybe we, we go a little long if we did that, and we, we want to beat the Baptist to the best restaurant. So there's that reason. Um, but uh, um, what we want to make available is that if, if your question doesn't get answered or you have another question, and this is for all the time, any questions that you have, we are here to, to talk, to answer questions. Um, I, please don't be intimidated. There isn't a stupid question. I'm, I, you ask me a question, I'm not going to say, oh, it's a dumb question. No. Um, uh, we're here to, to serve and to help. And so if we don't get to your question or if something else comes up, please feel free to ask us. But we're going to highlight some of these today and work through them. Please give Bethany and I grace because we don't have all the answers. We're going to try to be used of the Lord to speak uh, with the measure of wisdom that he's given to us and, uh, and hopefully uh, speak some truth. I mean, I know we'll speak things that are true. We did in first service. So unless we really fumble the ball, but you never know what can happen. So uh, we'll, we'll do our best to answer these questions. So without further ado, I'm going to direct the first question at you, my, my love. As a single person that feels like God has marriage for me in the future, how can I know if I'm equally yoked with someone before taking that step into marriage? So what this is talking about, equally yoked, there's a verse in the Bible that says, don't be unequally yoked. Um, and so what that really means is um, marry someone like there's two ox, I don't know why I'm deciding to explain this in this service, but anyways, two ox, they'd be yoked together, and so if they were unequally yoked, it didn't work. You wouldn't be able to uh, pull the, the cart. My um, ancient farming vocabulary is not the best, so if you want to correct that later, <laughs> go right ahead, but they had to, they had to be the same. You, could, you didn't want, you know, like a baby ox with the, the male, you know, strong beastly ox, right? I think you guys can understand this analogy. And so that's what it's talking about. And so first and foremost, uh, I would never recommend if you're dating um, anyone, I would never, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you love Jesus, I would never recommend dating someone who, who doesn't, who isn't. 
You know, they have every single quality except they don't love Jesus. Red flag, right? And the reason is, is because for Jake and I, our relationship with Jesus is the center of everything. So every, every decision we make with our money, every decision we make about where we're going to live, every decision that we make about raising our kids, having kids, um, even what we're going to eat for dinner. I'm just kidding. That one's not true. Right? Those are all going to come out of this view that we love Jesus. And so if, if I was married to Jake and he wasn't a Christian, it would be difficult. It would always add this extra tension where I want to, I, of course I want to raise my kids this way. He has no context for that because he, Christ isn't the center of his life. So first and foremost, I would say is that you definitely, you know, want to only, if you're a Christian, just only be dating Christians. That would be the first thing. And then the second thing I would say is inviting other people, if you are in a relationship that you're saying, hey, we're looking forward to getting married, I would invite other people's wisdom into your life. So for us, we always would offer premarital counseling. We would, you know, hook you up. That's the wrong uh, term, but same, same idea, with a uh, Christian couple who will walk with you, ask you questions, ask you the important questions, not to get into your business, not so that you can pass a class, but so that they can say, hey, these are potential minefields. For you guys, this is where you two look at this very differently. And so it's important to get on the same page or see that this could be a problem later on. Here's what I, I see quite often in, in young people, old people too, but young love. Let's we'll say yes. doesn't matter the age you are, but the young love is that when you're in love, you, you, there's nothing, you, right? You can't say anything to me that this person isn't the one. I have, I have ignored every red flag there ever was, right? I, I, there's nothing wrong. And it's really easy for couples to make everybody else outside of the relationship the enemy. And they're against our love. And we have this total Romeo and Juliet uh, thing happening. They both die, okay, guys, in the end. This is why this is a bad model, okay? But, um, but I'm, I'm teasing. But, the, but it's really important that you let people speak into your life. So maybe this is godly parents. Maybe this is... Um, Christian leaders, Christian pastors in your life. Can I tell you something as a Christian pastor? When I've had, when we've had couples be like, you know, what do you think about our relationship? Do you think that I want to tell them something they don't want to hear? Absolutely not. It is not like Thursday night, can't wait to really upset these people. No, I would rather sit at home watching Netflix, okay, eating popcorn like a normal human, you know. So when you have a godly Christian leader in your life who, who can come in and say, hey, I'm seeing this and it's kind of concerning me, they're not doing it because of ill will. And that's how we immediately get defensive. They don't understand. So that's, that would be my biggest advice is to allow people to speak into your relationship. Uh, I think a lot of the answers we give to some of these questions are going to be two sides of the same coin which I think is really a biblical idea that oftentimes truth is intention. So we have the holiness of God and the mercy of God, which are not at war with each other. How do you wrestle with that? Well, there's, you find truth in the tension of that. Um, and I think like in this whole question of equally yoked, the other side that we want to want to speak to is also to walk in humility and not assume that you have it all together and this other person doesn't. And also um, God is going to bring you together with somebody who you are going to go on a journey together and I think marriage and, and finding the right person and, and this dating kind of thing, it's two parts. It's part history and part mystery. So the history part is what's known. Like what's their character? Where have they gone in life? What, are, what are they, have they done? These are the knowns. And then the mystery is the calling of God and the future of what God's going to do in that person. And that's actually what makes marriage fun and an adventure and all of that. And so there is like going to be growth and change um, in, in that relationship. And I appreciate that Bethany gave me a chance um, and she's still doing it. And I'm just keep telling her, babe, I have potential. I have potential. Um, and someday you're going to see that potential come to fruition. <laughs> but but we, we took a risk in faith. And we took a risk based on not just blind faith, but a risk based on what is the history of this person. And she saw that I had a love for the Lord. And I saw that she had a love for the Lord, that we were... Uh, compatible, not just like we both like the same type of books or movies or, or something like that, but compatible in temperament, compatible in calling, um, and so on and so forth. So uh, hopefully that, that speaks into that. All right. Um, do you want to go to that next question? Okay. Um, let's, let's go ahead and move to, uh, yeah, let's go to this next one. So this is one that 
that we read, and honestly, when we read this question, we were in the car, and we were trying to stay alive because we were driving through a rainstorm, but we read this question, and both of us just were really deeply moved. Um, I think you might have even had tears in your eyes. I didn't, of course, because of the, the man, you know, just stoic, but um, my eye itched a little bit, and it was a little wet, but this question was this, what's the best way to look at how God sees a divorced and now married again person? Sometimes I feel I disappointed God by getting a divorce. I thought you were going to answer it. Um, so in first service, we were singing that song. We sing it here in second service too. But just that the, talking about the blood of Jesus, right, that he speaks a better word over you. And, you know, there's, there's no one here that hasn't, made a mistake in their life. There's no one here sitting in this room that doesn't have regret in their past. So not everyone in this room has been divorced, but every single person in this room can say there's things behind me that I regret. And if you go through next track, we actually talk about this about sin. Sin hurts relationship. Sin breaks relationship. That's what it does. And so all of us have brokenness behind us where we've hurt people right? Intentionally, unintentionally, whatever it is, we all have regret. And um, the thing that I really want every single person to, to understand today is that there's a difference between conviction of sin and condemnation from sin. Recently, we had one of our kids, they had done something, they got caught, you know, so then we're talking through the, the consequences for this action, and they said something when they're, they're feeling bad, they're feeling regretful that this thing has happened, and then they said, Mom, I knew when I was doing it, the Holy Spirit was telling me, don't do this. And, you know, as a parent, you're like, oh, thank God. <laughs> you're not a sociopath or whatever, you know, but, but that's that, we all have that. You have that inside of you, the Holy Spirit inside of you that convicts you of sin, that, you know, that tapping on your heart when you know, I should not do this. I should not make this mistake. It's like the Jiminy Cricket, right, on Pinocchio's shoulder, I almost said soldier, that saying, don't do this, that's conviction of sin. When you, you, when you, you are sinning, maybe you didn't have that Jiminy Cricket, but you are sinning now and you come to church and you realize, wow, that, that thing that I'm doing, that's, that's sin. I feel it. I know I need to turn away from that. That's godly. That's a good thing. That's God knocking on your heart saying, this isn't going to help you in your life. The difference is, is when you have sinned in the past and that keeps coming back at you, right? That's called condemnation. That's when you feel condemned by your sin. And the Bible says there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you have said, Jesus, I've made mistakes, would you forgive me? Would you help me live my life, right? This is the salvation prayer that we say. When you say that, you are in Christ. So now you don't live in condemnation. And so when you feel those thoughts of, of condemning for your past, you can say, no, that's not coming from God. That's not coming from the Lord. In fact, the Bible says that the enemy is the accuser. He's the one who accuses you. There's the beautiful story in the Bible when the, the woman who's caught in the act of adultery and the you know, Pharisees, they bring her to Jesus and they're saying, they have big, huge stones in their hands. They're saying, Jesus, right? According to the law, we're going to stone her. And Jesus says to them, okay, he who is without sin, you can cast the first stone. And so every single one of those men, you, they drop the stones, they leave. And then Jesus says to the woman, hey, where's all your accusers? You know, they've all gone. No one's here. And he says, neither do I accuse you. Jesus doesn't come and accuse you. He doesn't come and he reminds you of what you've done, done wrong. In fact, like that song says, he speaks a better word over you. He picks you up. And he said to that woman, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. I, I don't know if he said that to her in that passage. Just in case. Whew, whew. Okay. I don't want an extra biblical here. Right? But he's saying, like, I'm not accusing you. Go and live a different way. And that's what Jesus does for every single one of us. He's speaking a better word over your life. And so every single one of us, if you have shame, if you have condemnation, you say, no, I'm in Jesus. I'm new. Today is new. I'm leaving that past behind me. And I'm, and I'm moving ahead. The accuser, he might be accusing me. I'm going to ignore him because I'm with Jesus. And Jesus is speaking a better word over my life. Excellent. I think another thing to bring out on this is we talked about that concept of the coin, you know, the, the, the two sides of the coin. I think it's important that we understand the scripture, uh, and specifically in this question regarding divorce and marriage, um, the scripture functions as God's ideal 
This is God's heart. This is God's uh, template, if you will, for how we are to operate in this thing we call marriage. And so there's this absolutely high standard. And the thing we must not do is ever try to lower God's standard or change God's standard to, to make us feel acceptable because of that standard. But here's the thing, that the template that God gives in the Bible when it comes to marriage is he says this, marriage is a covenant made before God. Unlike our society today that treats it so cheaply, it is something holy and sacred. It is to be fought for. It is, in fact, even to, be, to, to, to die for. I mean, when I do a wedding for someone, and even when we got married, I remember thinking in the vows, till death do us part, I'm like, wow, are we like gladiators? I mean, this is intense. What is being spoken of there is the fact that God sees that your marriage covenant is so holy and so special and so sacred. What is being done there is that a fellow image bearer is entrusting their well-being, entrusting their emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being to you as another image bearer, and that you have now a sacred responsibility to live that out and walk that out with as much grace and goodness and and love for that person as, as possible, even to the place where you would die before you would break it. That is the template. And I think as Christians, we need to hold up that high standard of marriage. But then we need to look at it and say, okay, but what about when, as so many have, uh, when we have fallen short of God's standard? See, whether it's marriage or whether it's sexual purity or whether it's honesty, whether it's integrity, whether it's however many beautiful sacred things that are in the Bible that are held up as a template and a shining example, the scripture tells us that we have all fallen short of God's glorious standard. Which is why in that passage that Bethany mentioned, Jesus says, okay, those of you, any of you that have uh, without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. And all the stones hit the dirt, right? And they all walked away sorrowful, for they knew they had also fallen short of God's standard. So when I heard this question about being, you know, do I, have I disappointed God by getting a divorce? No, God is not disappointed in you. He has, he has a standard of marriage, and if you did break that standard, then that is a reality, that is truth, and we say amen, right? That's a settled question. But what about the cross, where the God who has the highest standard of all said, I will make you right with me and bring you back to that place of that standard. I will not break the standard. I will not lower the standard. I will elevate you with the precious blood of Jesus Christ that was poured out to bring you back into faithfulness and to bring you back into relationship with me. And that's that, that tension there where we say, man, uh, I'm, God's not disappointed in me. Um, even if I have fallen short, I can admit it. I don't deny that I, that I didn't hit the standard, didn't hit the mark. But I cling to the grace of Christ to now in my days moving forward from this point forward to honor him in all my ways and trust that his grace will be there for me when I fail in the future. Amen? The thing is that I don't believe God gets disappointed in us, and I'll tell you why. The scripture says that all of our days are in his book. So when you feel like you're a super Christian and you're having the best day and you're like, Shandai, I'm like spirit filled. I'm like, I'm like a combo of Joel Osteen and Benny Hinn, like walking around like I'm just the bee's knees. God saw that day and he probably laughs at you on that day. Like, well, wait till tomorrow. When all of a sudden, you know, whatever happens in the world throws you into a tissy fit, you know, or something and you're having a bad day. God's faithfulness is, is a line that never gets broken. His, he says he is faithful. He can't deny himself. Even when we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. So God's not disappointed in us. He, he loves us, and he challenges us to go to Christ, to, for Christ to continue to create that fidelity, that allegiance, that faithfulness of following God's standard in pursuit of him. Hopefully that's helpful. Uh, we're going to move on to one about marriage. What, what do you do in a season of no longer feeling physically attracted to your spouse? Um, I can't answer this one since it's never happened to me. Jake asked me to say that. Still said it. Um. Yeah, I, I can't say I speak from, from actual experience on this. What I can say is there, marriage has an ebb and a flow. And I know for, for me, if our emotional intimacy and our communication is lower, then the physical side doesn't, it's not the same, um, which I think is going to speak to another question that we'll talk about later. But the, the thing that, that, that we have to look at when it comes to a question like this, and I appreciate, again, these are very authentic, good questions. We're not making light of this. Um, 
your car has a bunch of, of important indicators. You have your gas tank, how much fuel is in the car, the oil, how much oil is in there, your transmission fluid, you know, the windshield uh, wiper fluid is kind of important. If you can't see, right, you need to, to clean your, your windshield. Um, and our, our hearts and our, our love is, is a little bit more diverse. Our culture has sort of gravitated towards emotional and physical love. I might even say emotional and physical lust, kind of in how the, the world expresses it. But it's like those two things are the only things. And in the Greek language, there are a bunch of words for love. There is agape, God's kind of love, phileo, brotherly love, friendship love, uh, ludus, which is like playful, kind of flirtatious love, eros, erotic or uh, sexual love. Um, am I missing any here? There's more. Pragma, which is like pra practical expression. And what I found is that um, the, the being faithful in my marriage, now I'm not saying being faithful, like not having an affair. I'm saying being faithful on the daily basis to invest in my relationship with Bethany and continue to keep all of those fluids full in the car, if you will, it, it actually elevates all the rest. So, you know, you see people that are like 70 or 80 years old and they're still married. And it's not because there's like so much sexiness going on there, unless I'm missing something. And maybe somebody could tell me, but, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Anyways. Um, <laughs> but like, I, I'm getting older every year, so I don't feel like I'm getting like more attractive. You know what I mean? Uh, um, but I'm more attracted to Bethany, like, but it's not from a purely physical standard of beauty, though I think she's absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. But um, you look like a movie star. But anyways, um, it's not just that surface level. It's that there is a tapestry of conversations, inside jokes. I watched her hands get cracked from washing dishes for my children uh, and homeschooling my kids. I think she's gorgeous when she's wearing sweatpants, sitting at the table. She doesn't wear sweatpants. She's fully dressed at the time I'm doing homeschooling. Sorry. <laughs> correct that really quick but you know sitting there not ready for the day per se and homeschooling the kids like how beautiful is she to me because I'm not measuring her along one standard does that make sense and I think when you find that it that it's dropped that attraction or whatever what's probably dropping are all the levels and there needs to be an investment the other thing that also happens is God's type of love is non-reciprocal. And so what it often does is points back to you and says, how can I become or invest in what I feel is lacking? Because what actually might be lacking in the attraction might not be them, it might be you. Nobody reacted to that. I paused <laughs> pregnantly there for a reaction. Okay, like what might be lacking is that you're not investing, so you're wanting them to fulfill your needs and they're not doing it now because you have stopped actually giving that type of love, right? So just a thought there. Yep. You want to add anything to that? Okay. Go right into the next one. Which, the, uh, how to combat feelings. Okay. Yeah, this is a good one too. So again, these are really authentic and appreciate these questions. How to combat feelings of emotional lust towards other people. Example, wanting to spend time with a guy friend because he shows genuine interest in my life while my spouse doesn't seem to care or doesn't pursue me. I'm answer. Yeah, I'm going to let you answer this one. He answered it first service, that's what I was like. Um, so there's a verse in the Bible that I'm actually going to talk about next week, but it says, flee youthful lusts. And um, we always joke, it, you say, flee lustful youths. Just kidding. Um, but just because it says youthful lusts doesn't mean that it's just because you're young. You know, you can flee youthful young lusts no matter what age that you're at this is this question is really important because um emotional lust towards someone else is just lust towards someone else and the sad thing to me when i read this is i just think whoa right this is heading towards bad and that's why the bible it doesn't say to be stronger than your lusts it doesn't say to get better than your lust stand right in your face of your lust no it says run away from them as far as you can. And that's the really important line in all of our lives, whether you're single or married. It's really important that whatever causes you to have lust in your heart for something that isn't yours, for something that doesn't belong to you, that we're not supposed to be stronger, be better, and, and be gooder. No, we're supposed to run away from it. And so for me, my, um, my best advice for this is that you cut off 
that relationship, that it stops because this, this, is, this is feeding into lust in my heart. Jake was saying something in first service that's so good. The grass is never greener. It looks greener over there, but grass is green when you water it. That's what my neighbors tell me in the summer. <laughs> you know your grass would be green if you watered it? Oh, thanks. Um, right? The grass is greener where you water it. And so it's really important to understand that I'm, I'm, not, I'm not supposed to be better. Like, I th- and that's, that still speaks to that condemnation. If, if you do have, we all have areas in our life where we're going to be prone to lust. So it's not that you need to be stronger than that. It's that you need to get away from that. So whether that's the books you read, the um, social media apps that you're on, if it's, you know, the internet completely, right? Whatever it is that causes you to lust, get rid of it. That's what Jesus was saying when he was saying, you're, if your one eye causes you to sin, just gouge it out. <laughs> he wasn't saying like, put on some goggles, put on, no, he was saying, get rid of it. So obviously, please don't gouge out your eyes. But what he's saying is, no, get, get rid of those things that are causing you to lust, because this, your marriage is the most important thing, and the grass isn't greener. Really good. I would say, too, the biblical pattern for change so is, is different than the fleshly pattern for change. So when God looked at us and he said, here is my people, my children, they're unfaithful to me, they're lost and broken in their sin, they're pursuing idols, they're, they're completely lost to me, he didn't then demand their behavioral change. He gave his only son to be the sacrifice for them, and he gave the kind of love that he then gives us the capacity to give back to him through his spirit. Think about that for a second when it comes to marriage. She's not meeting my needs, you know, or he's not meeting my needs. My husband's not investing in me emotionally. He's not really showing genuine interest in my life. Uh, That could all be completely true. The fleshly pattern is to say, I demand, or I'm going to go get my needs filled somewhere else, or I demand that you meet my needs. The biblical pattern, the godly pattern, is that you give what you desire. You, you sow what you wish to reap. Think about how different that is. So in my marriage, when, and we've lived this out, I think, between both of us in various situations. When one or the other of us wasn't feeling our needs weren't being met or we weren't being fulfilled, knowing how the, the economy of the spiritual realm works and how God works, if I feel like Bethany is being unkind to me or she's not you know, giving me the emotional intimacy, then I don't go to her and say, I demand that you are nicer to me because that'll really work, won't it? <laughs> what I start to do is I start to be the change I want to see. In other words, I'm going to invest in her. I'm going to listen to her love language and get to know her better. I'm going to invest in her and allow God to work through her and God to meet my needs himself and through my wife, but I'm not going to go look somewhere else for that to happen or try to force it. So that, that principle is a life-changing principle. Invest so into what you want to receive. Not, not, and not in a manipulative way, like, Bethany, you look very nice today. You know, you too, Jake, you know. <laughs> My kindergartner, <laughs> moving on. My kindergartner has started saying I'm rude or mean frequently when I'm enforcing rules or pretty much suggesting suggesting any idea that isn't his. It makes me so defensive. How can I frame my mindset to parent better? What's the best way to engage and redirect him? And then a follow-up question on this, somebody else asked, and we can loop them together. What do you find as an effective way to treat children's bad behavior and tantrums? Do you want me to run away? (laughs) We're actually asking this question. Does anybody have an answer? Um, So I'm going to give you three words because as a pastor, I have to use alliteration. Uh, Empower explain, enforce, okay? Empower, explain, enforce. Okay, so the thing you need to first understand is you are the adult. You pay the rent or the mortgage for the property. You buy the cap and crunch. You control the Netflix and the Disney Plus and the Hulu and the, I mean, I don't anymore because I don't know how to use it anymore, so Evie controls it, but we still pay for the internet so we can cut it off if we need to. You need to be empowered that God gave you as a gift to your children to parent them, to pastor them, and to be the standard of righteousness in the home. And you are in charge. And we have bought into this like very untrue idea culturally that children are just adults in little bodies. That's not true. They are undeveloped. They are are a lump of wet clay. And God gave them to you and you to them to bring shaping and, and, and to help them grow in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. 
Samuel the prophet had to grow in the, in, in the Lord. Jesus had to grow in, in the Lord. He had parents. So you're like, well, he's Jesus. Well, I don't know what he was like as a kid. We don't see it in the Bible, but he still had parents. And they got mad at him one time because he didn't tell him where he was. He was at the temple. And then he was like, I had to be about my father's business. And they were like, Jesus, you know, it's amazing verse. But anyways, um, God gave you to your kids. So you need to start from that place of empowerment. Like I actually have the power. I'm in control and I don't have to bow to the demands of young Hitler young Napoleon, right? Who's mad and calling me mean or whatever. So you are empowered. Okay. So receive empowerment in Jesus name. (sighs) Feel the glory. Okay. Second, explain. So with, with our children, you know, I think this is important. We don't discipline or correct or adjust or anything. We don't, we don't throw a tantrum to fix tantrums. So I see parents, they're like telling their kids, well, you're making me feel bad. Your kid doesn't care, number one. Number two, they don't have the mental or emotional capacity to deal with that. And you maybe need to talk to your therapist or your pastor or somebody, but like your, your kid doesn't need your emotional baggage and you to throw a tantrum for their tantrum. So you need to be a calm and unanxious presence, which means if your kid is irritating you, like kids hurt your feelings. Our kids have hurt our feelings. I'll be like, they hurt my feelings. You know, my kids hid their face when I shaved my beard. They hid their face from me. I was like, wow, I've been shunned, you know. And, uh, but the kids hurt your feelings. Um, take five, right? Go watch YouTube. Go read about the organ ducks, whatever you need to do. Talk to Jesus. Listen to some worship music. Come back in a calm and unanxious, empowered state. You, not throwing a tantrum yourself and also not in anger, okay? Just calm. And now explain, this is the line. You will not cross this line. If you cross this line, then there will be a consequence. And then as God leads you and you discover what the, what the lines are that you need to draw with your children and what the consequences are that are appropriate, then you need to, three, enforce and be a calm and unanxious presence as you enforce, but be an unyielding force. So one of the things I tell my kids is I say, listen, we have a bit of a conflict. You are punching or hitting your sibling. Uh, We do not allow that in this home. I know. Okay, so we don't punch, we don't kick. I know, dude. Okay, so if you do it again, then we will take away Netflix for a week or or you'll get a spanking or whatever, whatever the consequence ends up being. And, And what happens is when they cross that line, then you show up again, not throwing a tantrum yourself and not in anger, and you are that unyielding force of good because you're shaping their character. Now, you don't, you don't parent your kids in one moment. It's a lifetime. So the thing is, you go, well, Jake and Bethany, do you guys win like all the time with your kids? No, we often feel overwhelmed. We often feel disempowered. It's like, but what we're trying to be is that framework that allows them to form godly character and understand those lines so that when we're not there and the framework is gone, the, the structure remains. And it's just like how God deals with us. He gives us his law and it's, and it's to be written on our hearts so that even if we... We, even out of our own free will, we choose to do what is right. So when it comes to children and like this specific question, how do you deal with this? You are empowered first. You explain, here's the line, don't cross it. And if you do, here's the consequence. And then you enforce with consistency. I'll tell my kids, like, I will win this battle. And, and if I die before the battle is won, I will come back and haunt you from the grave. <laughs> but we will not be violent because we are enforcing godly character you know, in that, in that environment. So hopefully that's helpful. Okay, I'll ask you a question. Okay, I want to do, let's do the one on teens, huh? Let's do the forgiveness one and the one on teens. Sound good? Let's do the teen one first, and then I'll let you end with forgiveness question. So insights we can say to our teenagers regarding when they can have a boyfriend or girlfriend or start dating. Yay. Bethany says when they're 30. Yeah. That sounds good to me. <laughs> um, on this one, uh, I just need to explain something. So I am a millennial, and I, I have skinny jeans and wear boots and flannels and stuff, but I am um, probably like more like a baby boomer in my heart. I'm a dinosaur, and I'm like all about, okay, boomer. Thanks, Grandpa. I'm about standards in this area. I feel like I look at things like our culture and what's going on with dating relationships with teens and, and young adults, and I'm like, wow, those are really bad results. We should do something different. Um, so that's kind of where I come from. Um, what I would say probably to sum up how I feel about teens dating would be to say, uh, why get all dressed up with nowhere to go? Dude, you're 14 years old. 
you need to like get really attracted to library books. Um, so you should like, before you get to know Matilda, you should get to know math Tilda, you know, like you should <laughs> like I fall in love with Jesus before you fall in love with Jennifer. You know what I mean? Um, I know you have like you need to learn how to take care of your own skin and take showers regularly and smell appropriate before you like pursue a relationship. Maybe that helps. I don't know. But all joking aside, because I'm not I, I care about young people. I feel like there is a season of life where you've left being a child, but you're not yet a full adult. And it's a season of prophetic preparation for young people to give their life, their heart, their affection, attention, and allegiance fully over to Jesus and allow him to form them and shape them and give them great friendships, give them great relationships with, with, with people in their youth group and their, their school and all that, and not have to deal with the, the breaking of innocence that comes when you begin to pursue romantic relationships and you're dealing with questions above your pay grade. Corey Tinboom, when she was a young girl, she read a book and it said something about sex and it was either her or her sister or somebody, went to her father and she said, Dad, what is this? And he said to her, uh, uh, my dear, um, you know how I am the one that carries the heavy burdens and uh, I don't hand you the heavy loads to carry and I'm not going to answer that question because it would be like me giving you a load that's too heavy for you to carry right now. And so in the lack of wisdom of our culture, again, which demeans and diminishes uh, parents and their role and parents actually pastoring and parenting their children, which you should be doing, um, we've sort of said 13, 14, 15-year-olds are capable of dealing with the emotional uh, and, and spiritual and physical ramifications of, of these romantic relationships without sort of any intervention in them. And most adults can't even do it correctly. Half of marriage isn't in divorce. Like, it's not like we're like so good at it when you cross 20 that you're instantly better. So uh, what I believe in is, is, is encouraging that season of preparation um, for young people and abstaining or just not giving themselves over to those relationships. And we don't put an age on it. And the reason we don't put an age on it is because the age is not really the issue. The issue is, are you prepared to bear this weight? You know what I mean? It's like somebody wants me to lift 500 pounds. It doesn't matter if I'm 50 or 15. I can't do it. I mean, I can, but some people can't. <laughs> you know, it's not about the age. It's about the, the capacity to carry a weight. And so we've, we actually wrote a document when we were uh, in youth ministry. And Bethany and I, between us, have been in youth ministry for like 20 plus years. So we've, we've worked with teenagers and young adults in this, we just put together a document called Guidelines for Godly Relationships. And we have like 20 copies available. So if you want this, you can get it. It's not just for parents of teens. It's for any relationships. Yeah, anybody who's single um, or anybody who cares. And we can print out more. You know, God's been good to us here at Joy Church. We can print real paper. Come on, somebody. We can do it. So um, we'll print out more if we need them, but please come and get that. What this is, it's not saying like, here's the rules and it's about being 15 years old or whatever. These are giving you values and principles by which you can parent and pastor this area of life. Okay, so that's my answer. Okay, let me, let's do one more question. All right. I'm going to ask Bethany this question. Uh, what is the purpose of forgiveness? Is, per, is forgiveness an internal activity or is it demonstrative or both? Demonstrative. Yeah. Is that the right way to say it? Yeah. Thank you. She, I think you could say demonstrative. It would probably be okay as well. It might be incorrect, but it's still okay. How does forgiveness differ from healthy boundaries? What is the difference between putting up a wall against someone and putting up a boundary. So what is the purpose of forgiveness? Is it an internal activity? Is it demonstrative or both? How does forgiveness differ from healthy boundaries? Raise your hand if you thought that was pronounced demonstrative. Anybody else? Thank you. Thank you. Okay, first service, I pronounced it demonstrative. No one corrected me. Um, what is the, okay, so I think this also, we had a, another question come in that was talking about boundaries with adult children. And so I think this is going to answer both of those. But uh, what is the purpose of forgiveness? Forgiveness as a Christian is one of the most important parts of our spiritual walk. There's different things in the Bible, you know, God says that have kind of like promises with them. Like he says, honor your father and mother that you may have long life. Some of you guys are like, oh shoot, I'm going to start honoring my father and mother. No, I'm kidding. Like that's a positive thing. If you do this, this will happen. God has one of those about forgiveness, but it's like 
very important. He says, if you do not forgive other people, I will not forgive you. Our entire salvation is dependent on God forgiving us. And so he, he considers forgiveness to be the, very important, very important. And so we need to consider forgiveness to be very important in our walk with God. There's a great quote that talks about unforgiveness is like swallowing poison, ex- is expecting the other person to die. And that's really what unforgiveness is in every single one of our hearts, is that we are holding on to something. We're holding on to a person. We're holding on to, um, it could even be ourselves, right? We're holding on to that thing, and we're thinking that they're going to be hurt by it. But really, it's just killing us. And so it's so important for every single one of us to be forgiving people. And I know that a lot of people, we say, I did forgive, but it keeps coming up. I'm still in pain. I'm still hurt. That's okay. That's, that's you sitting, realizing I need to keep forgiving. I need to keep forgiving this person. I need to keep releasing them. I need to keep allowing God to work on that in my heart. The Bible says, you know, how many times they asked Jesus that question, how many times should I forgive someone? Seven times, 70 times. It wasn't an actual number. It's the point that we have to live a life of forgiving. Keep keeping our hearts open, forgiving people. And this says, is it demonstrative or is it... um, Internal, I think forgiveness is mostly an internal activity. It's you saying, God, I'm forgiving. I'm releasing this person. I'm not going to hold this against them anymore. I'm, I'm getting rid of this, right? I'm letting them go. A really excellent book, if this is something that you are walking in, want to grow in, is Freedom Factor. It's called The Freedom Factor. Don't know who it's by. But you could Google it. I thought someone said it. Um, But that's an excellent book. It'll walk you through why this is Bruce Wilkinson. Bruce Wilkinson. Why you need to do it. How to walk. It walks you through really practically steps on how to forgive someone. Making sure that it's gone, right? That you feel that freedom from it. So that's really important in your life. I believe that it is mostly internal. That there's so many people in my life I've forgiven. They don't know they ever did anything wrong. I don't need to go to people and be like, I forgave you. I've had a lot of people do that in my life. (laughs) You're like, whoops. Well, you're going to need to forgive me again because I didn't know I hurt you, right? Um, But that's, that's not the point of it. It's not a weapon. It's you making sure that you're free on the inside. So it is an internal thing. I think too, I know it's really quick. Forgiveness is also not something you should do. Maybe, maybe, maybe they didn't even do something wrong, but you feel something you can still forgive. And that's where you don't go up and go, I forgive you. So it's not just when they've actually done something. It's actually something that you can perceive that someone hurt you. Maybe they did it unintentionally. You might even know that, but you still need to forgive it. And then it says, how does forgiveness differ from healthy boundaries? Right now in in our culture, we have where people boundaries is like, a buzzword, you know, or toxic, that person was toxic, so I cut them out of my life, right? We, I think we have all come in contact with toxic people, but I think that we act like people are toxic a lot more often than they are. Like when people we uh, differ in opinion, we're like, that's toxic. I'm cutting them off, right? And we use this boundary as a weapon. And boundaries aren't, aren't weapons. Boundaries, for me, in my life, are to protect me. So I do have boundaries in my life with people in my life who maybe they're not a toxic person, but their relationship in my life is toxic for me. And so I still have a relationship with them, but I have a boundary in place. I've never told them this boundary, right? I'm not using it as a weapon against them, but I have a boundary where I know I can't have this type of relationship with you. Because maybe I'm not mature enough, I'm not healthy enough, I'm not whatever it is, but it's, it's bad for me. And so I personally cannot have that relationship with you. I don't need to tell that person that, right? I can just have that boundary inside of me and I know I can't have that kind of relationship with you. Then there are boundaries that you do have to communicate. One time I, we had some, someone was over at my house and um, Jake wasn't home and they came to my house, they were gonna hang out and while they were there, they started really uh, just criticizing Jake for something that they were perceiving that he had done to me. It was like they were taking up my offense that I didn't have. So I you know, told them, hey, what you're seeing is not true. This is the truth. What you're saying is not true. 
right? And then we continue hanging out. Then they start up again. Oh, Jake can't believe it. You know, all this stuff about him. And so I said again, excuse me. (laughs) Remember what I said? That's not true. That's not happening. So you keep bringing it up, but that's not factually true. And if you keep you know, saying these bad things about my husband in my house, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. This is the same exact principle Jake used about kids. It's the exact same thing, is that you're setting a boundary line. So I was saying, hey, this is the line. Here's truth. Now, if they were coming and they were telling me something that was true, you know, and they just wanted me to know, warn me, that would be different. But this person wasn't walking in truth. I'm correcting them. This is the truth. What the thing that you think is happening is not happening. They're not giving it up. So I said, if you keep on, you know, saying these things, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. I don't want to ask you to leave. I want to hang out. I want to have a great day. But I don't, I can't let you just come here in my house and say these things about my husband. Right? And so then, you know, it's a little awkward and then we continue with the day. And then again, they start to bemoan Jake. So finally I said, listen, we've had this conversation You can't keep saying these things. If you will not stop, then you will have to leave. I would like you to stay. But if you won't stop, you have to leave. And it got really awkwardly quiet. And then they said, well, I guess I'll go. And I said, okay. Listen, I wasn't wasn't raised in a house with conflict. We didn't really do conflict. Like if people got mad, if there was conflict, you buried it. So I'm not saying this because Bethany's so assertive. She's able to do that. No, this is a practical thing that you can do in your life because you realize, hey, these are lines that we don't cross. And you probably naturally do this with children. If a kid walked up over to you and was dumping hot chocolate on you, you'd be like, a stranger, not your own kid, right? You'd be like, <laughs> if they did it again on purpose, you'd be like, don't do that, right? That's a boundary in your life. I don't need a stranger dumping hot chocolate on me. But we don't do this with adults because we say, I'm not assertive enough. No, it's okay to have boundaries in your life to say, hey, I don't allow this to come into my home. I don't allow this to come into my life. Hey, here's the boundary. I love you. I want to keep hanging out with you. But if you keep crossing it, we're going to have to have a change, right? This is the consequence. And it's okay to calmly and rationally say those things, communicate those things, communicate where the boundary is. And you know, a lot, oftentimes, I'm going to do this so calm like this, just talking normally, not yelling, not throwing things, right? But almost always, if a person tells you what happened, they're going to tell you, and then you screamed at me. I never even raised my voice. Why? Because conflict is, is difficult. It's difficult for all of us. And so when we perceive someone's mad at me, well, they were screaming at me. <laughs> Maybe they were. But most of the time, you can just very calmly say, here's the boundary. Don't cross it. You know, if you're going to cross the boundary, we're going to have a problem. She's good. It's a good answer. Well, guys, I think we're going to call it a day on those questions. If we didn't get to one of your questions and you'd like it answered or you have another one, please feel free to come up to us after service. Um, we'll be here from the time of uh, 1216 to 1222. And uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, we're, we're, we're here to answer questions and help out if we can. And hopefully the Lord spoke something to you today. My, our heart as we went through this was obviously Bethany and I are not the end all be all of answers. Um, I mean, I'm definitely not. She, she does a better job. But um, um, we were hoping that God would, would use this as a prophetic pivot point in someone's life where like even if this wasn't one of your questions that you heard something and you were like, okay, that, that shifts how I think about this. I'm going to change maybe my approach in marriage or change my approach in parenting or something like that. And uh, again, we're, we're here to help if you have more questions or follow-up on that. If you guys would, would you bow your head and close your eyes? You know, real quick, um, every week we, we make an opportunity for people to start the journey of following Jesus. And I know today we didn't preach the gospel from cover to cover, but The gospel is present in everything we talked about today because we're talking about a God that created a beautiful world that was meant to have great relationship with God and great relationships with other people, and it has been fractured and broken by sin. It brings death. Sin brings death into our physical bodies, our spiritual life, but it also brings death into our relationships where we begin to keep score with one another. We begin to feel... uh, um, offended at someone or like someone has their one up on us and now we have to get back at them what that results in is is a world of broken relationships the beauty of the gospel is that the god that made all new things wants to make all things new and wants to heal us at a deep level so that our relationships begin to look like they were intended to look 
And that starts, the most important relationship is your relationship with Jesus Christ. The gospel is this, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. That type of life that God wants to give you is going to go into every aspect of your being, every part of your life, your marriage, your family, your parenting, your Netflix viewing history. God's life wants to invade the death that's in us. And we, we start that journey by receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior. And I want to just take 30 seconds and explain that, that receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior is not a magic prayer like Jack and the Magic Beanstalk. You grow a big beanstalk and you go to heaven. You climb all the way up there. No. When we receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, we're saying, I am giving you the control of my life. You are my Lord. I now follow you. So what your word says is what I follow. What your spirit leads me to do is what I do, even when it hurts, even when it costs me something. But I receive you as my Savior as well, which means you've paid for my sin, and now I am no longer, no longer under condemnation. I am now a son or a daughter. I belong to you, Lord, and I get to enjoy your presence. You are with me no matter what happens in my life. Life is going to get harder. It's going to get easier. It's going to have ebbs and flows and ups and downs, but God will be with you. And you belong to him when you give your life to Christ. And so today, if you're here and you say, Pastor Jake, I want to start that journey of following Jesus. I want to give my heart to Christ and receive him as my Lord and Savior. Would you just be so bold as to raise your hand so I can see? We're not looking around. We're not going to call you out and embarrass you. Thank you so much. That's awesome. Thank you. Anybody in this place, Pastor Jake, I want to pray this with you. I want to, I want to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Anyone else today? It's a great moment, great day to receive Christ. Awesome. Okay, well, we're going to pray this together. Repeat after me. Dear Jesus, thank you for saving me. I confess my sin to you. I know that I've not lived up to your standard, but I thank you for your grace and mercy revealed at the cross. Thank you for giving your life for me and making a way for me to be right with you. I give you my life. I receive you as Lord and Savior in Jesus' name. Amen.